A Philistine's Guide to Literature, an unrefined analysis of superior written works, with your host, Zach Hall. Oh boy, here we are. We're back, and welcome to A Philistine's Guide to Literature. I am Zach Hall, your host, and we are reading Infinite Jest. I do apologize for this being a little bit late. It's Wednesday right now as I'm recording it. Should have been out on Saturday. Had some buddies in town, so this was really the, the last thing on my mind. But... Man, this has been uh, this has been quite a week of reading. Actually, I stopped a little bit over the weekend, and I, I didn't read my prescribed chapters. So Monday and yesterday, I've been catching up, and I must say that it has uh, it has really started to take off. So today, we're going to be talking about pages 151 up to 258. So let's get into it. So we started out the last time I left you all with. The Enfield Tennis Academy was having a urinalysis day, um, apparently because it's a tennis academy. They are all, you know, in this uh, drug testing consortium thing, if you will. So all of them were, uh, were doing their little pee test or whatever. So you know some of our friends at ETA, they do like to imbibe a little bit, whether it be, uh, you know, some kind of a, a natural drug or a chemical drug. But... I'd actually mentioned in the beginning of that chapter, I thought it was funny and maybe uh, maybe something bigger picture that that the Onan is then in currently chemically troubled times. So we see a couple of the guys at ETA actually selling the uh, the the piss of of younger students, like they go and find the uh, like the I guess like the real young kids, like the ten year olds or whatever, who aren't really into doing bad stuff, and they uh, they have them pee in whatever, and then they um, they put it in little uh, eyedropper bottles, like little visine bottles or whatever, and then they sell it for ten dollars to all of the older players, so they can uh, get away with their drug test. So while that's all funny, especially the part about the uh, buying the little kids, I think it's important to, to think about, because it, it, it talks about how much of a market there is for this this pee at the Enfield Tennis Academy. So I know that I've, I've discussed, and you all have read how that, you know, we have some characters in the book, Ken Aretti, Kate Gompert, Hal, even to some degree, who certainly have some kind of a uh, addiction to drugs or chemical dependency or whatever, but I think now we're really seeing that this this attitude towards drugs is, while it's not accepted, I think accepted by by governing bodies, whether it be you know the Enfield Tennis Academy or the Onan Junior Tennis League Association or whatever, I think that the people who live in this world, I think that they're kind of in a, in a world where a lot of people are doing drugs. And I, I think that even if you take the Enfield Tennis Academy as a small sample, it looks like a lot of them were doing it. And hence why Mike Pemulus and, the, uh, you know, his buddy there were able to, to sell so much of this peeve just because everybody's doing it. So I guess it's it's unfair to say that, like, oh, these people have a have a, a weed problem. Ken Reddy's crazy and Hal's crazy and you know, all these people are doing all these terrible things. It seems like it's it's commonplace in one way or the other. So I think something interesting to to think about as we go forward, because once again, I think that I think it I think it really plays an important part in the story. And I think now it's it's not only shaping our characters, but it's something that shapes society as a whole. 
this also kind of led into this whole Hal and Michael Pemulus biography and kind of talking about them a little bit. And I must say that I really like this guy, Pemulus. I think that I said that I liked him in the beginning, just kind of his interactions with the uh, the younger students during like the big buddy talks. But he comes from not a lot of money. It doesn't seem like he's kind of a hard guy. and He maybe doesn't fit in with like the, the ETA yuppie. I think that's, at least that's that's what I, I visualize. Like, these, these prep school guys who are here playing tennis. Pemulus, like, grew up on the streets in Boston here, and he started playing, like, street tennis with, like, a crappy racket out on crappy courts. And now he's here, and uh, he just seems like a cool dude. He seems pretty funny. He, uh, he seems like a pretty down-to-earth guy, and I don't know, I just, I really like him. Maybe, like, he seems like someone I would want to be friends with, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And Hal even discusses friendship, and you kind of get this, this this image of friendship at the end of this little section here because it talks about friendship at ETA and it describes it as being like it's it's like negotiable or something like that it's it's like money it says yes the quote is friendship at ETA is non-negotiable currency and i guess i don't i don't really have a a good read on what that meant cuz kind of what i took away from it was that the friendship at ETA is kind of fleeting and maybe exchangeable and maybe not to be trusted. Not that these guys aren't buddies with each other, but I think that it may be kind of face value stuff. It's like, yeah, he's a, he's a nice guy, but you know, if I wasn't his friend or whatever. And, and I think that that really comes from the competitive nature there. I just have now started reading the Port Washington tennis tournament, which I don't want to get into too much, but you can kind of see that the, the competitiveness of it, that that even though you know these guys, these guys are are two very top ranked players. They might not associate as much with the the lower ranked guys unless the lower ranked guys are good in a certain level. I don't know, but the point is, I think that as readers, we we don't want to get too too comfortable. I don't think with our ETA guys, like it's not like if Hal got into a jam. I don't know how many of his quote unquote buddies might rush to his his aid or something. You know what I mean? I hope that I hope that makes sense because. That's kind of where I'm at with it. We then move into this super strange, but I think very important chapter where Hal and Oren and Mario's grandfather, James Sr., is talking to a young James Oren in Candenza, uh, who himself, uh, their father, at about age 10. And he's, he's talking to the son, what it seems to be out in their garage, and they're getting ready to go play tennis, and it looks like it's uh, it's James Incandenza. When I say James Incandenza, I mean Hal and Mario and Oren's father, um, you know, himself. And uh, for all intents and purposes, I'm going to refer to the, the, the senior James as senior. So they're out in their garage, and immediately it starts off where, where senior is kind of talking to James, and he's trying to, you know, like teach him something about like how to live his life in a way and how to kind of like treat things and let the world happen around him. I'm not going to get into it too much, but it seems that there's a disparity between the way that the senior James Incandenza and his his wife, James Incandenza's mother, kind of act. And that the mother looks like she's very brash and she does things quickly and she slams car doors and she opens drawers quickly, whereas James Incandenza is trying to, or where senior is trying to place this emphasis on doing things the way they need to work and they talk about opening a garage door and that the garage door you know it has if you just if you do it's it's on track so if you open it the way it wants to be opened it'll work every time and he's like like really harping on this like you feel that like feel how it's it's going up nice and slow you just use two fingers and just guide it up 
So they kind of keep talking. They're having these conversations, and, and you start to learn a little bit about James and Candenza's life. He was very tall as a child. He's only 10 years old at this point, but he's already like six feet tall. So I think he kind of sticks out a little bit. And the father knows that he's going to be a good tennis player because he's so big. And the father is really excited for him to get his, to get out there and start playing. And that's kind of what they're moving towards. But there's a, an interesting part in it where, where he starts to kind of talk about James Incandenza's interests. And he has all these books and they're books about lenses and optics and stuff like that, which, as we know, is what James Incandenza ends up studying in school and being a world-renowned expert is, is optics and lenses and, and stuff and stuff like that. So not the father doesn't facilitate that, but he's like, you know, put down the book, son. Come on, this is tennis time. I know you're going to be good and like all this stuff. The father also starts to drink throughout the entire scene. And at first, he uses his flask that he has with him as an example of one of those things that like it just works. He's talking about the cap, screwing it on and off. And he's like, look, see that? The groove's in it. It just, it, it works nice. It's a, it, it's, and it looks, it, and it works well. But then he starts to kind of drink out of it, and he starts to get drunk. And it makes for a really uncomfortable ending. I actually even wrote in my notes that it, it, it was intense, and it started out really, really good. And then it just, a, a hardcore downward spiral as the senior James Incandenza just kind of goes nuts, and he starts kind of, like, projecting his, his sorrows and his life choices and how he's unhappy, and he's talking about how he played tennis as a child and he wasn't, he was good, but he wasn't great. And he never stuck with it because of this injury that he had that was because his father never came and saw him and he like busted up his knees or whatever. But without again, going too far into that for the sake of time, I think that what I saw as the most important piece of that was kind of his attitude and his choices, especially led by this this uh, this quote that he had where he tells James Incandenza that he's scared of him dying without being seen, I think that that may have influenced James Incandenza later in life. So, like, you know, he, he I think this experience was certainly something that, that had a profound effect on him. And while it may have not affected him at a young age because, you know, he was a good tennis player, he was a good student, he was all this stuff, he was smart, I think that as he got closer to the age that his father was when they had this interaction he started to see some of the connections he's like well damn it i'm like my dad you know i did some stuff i played tennis and here i am but what do i have to show for it and this might have been where he started his midlife film thing in his his way to be seen i think that this this scene bar none was was very very important and certainly had a profound effect on our entire story because it kind of it's why why did they do this so we see a little glimpse of Hal in where it talks about Mario's film. And I must say, Mario, uh, throughout this stint of reading, has really grown as a character for me because I think that we start to see a lot more of Mario and kind of get an idea for where he's at. However, I will say that I totally agree with whomever posted it on the the Reddit site that like I, I do not have a clear picture of what Mario's affliction is. It seems like, you know, he has some kind of a handicap both mentally and physically but I don't really have a good appreciation for like how how he lives his life or like what he does so I don't know but but as far as like what his interests are especially when it's talking about uh him and Pemulus downstairs doing the 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 work on the films and Mario at his mother's house listening to the radio and that's what he's into 
and all this stuff, I think, and then this this movie that he made about Hal that I'm about to get into, I think it really paints a picture of Mario's just a nice dude, and I think people generally tolerate him. It's not like, you know, he is, I, you know what I keep thinking of? I keep thinking of, the, of 300. You know that scene in 300 where they have that guy who's like the scary ogre dude, the hunchback guy, who like comes and he wants to be a Spartan, and he has like his shield and stuff, but the king or whatever, he's like, lift your sword up, and he can't do it. And then he goes and becomes the bad guy. I do not think that that is Mario and Candenzo. While I think that Mario struggles and is, you know, maybe a lot like this this ogre bad guy dude in in 300, I don't think that his family and his friends are going to push him away like they did in that movie. At least not yet. Like I said, it seems like people tolerate him and certainly love him. But we do get to a little glimpse into Hal when he's talking about himself as a feral tennis prodigy. And I think this is great because Hal is someone who, while he's, you know, one of our main characters, I don't think I had a great read on him up until now. Because I think that my impression of him is Hal is very smart. Hal is very smart. And it seems like stuff came naturally to him, especially this tennis thing. You know, his father, his brother, his grandfather, everybody's great at tennis. And then here's Hal. And when he's talking about this feral prodigy thing, it's talking about his, like, day-to-day routine. And it looks like Hal really you know, has to work at tennis. I'm not saying that he doesn't have natural ability, but, you know, he's out there doing those 1,000 serves a day or whatever, or every morning before dawn, he does 1,000 serves, and he's working out, and he's working hard. So I think that that really, you know, gives us a glimpse of his personality, that he uh, he goes hard, and he's dedicated. So why is that important? I don't know, but maybe, you know, in the future, it's going to kind of give us Hal's motivations for doing things. I don't, again, I don't, I don't know why that's important, but I think that it's a, it's a, it's a powerful character trait to have is, is, you know, extreme dedication and a good work ethic. That's not just something I think that the author would give Hal lightly. The next little section was Montesian. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that, but it was. Uh, it looked like she was like one of the um, one of the the counselors or whatever at Annette House, the drug rehab place, and it was kind of talking about her transcripts, her uh, her interactions she had with people, and I thought these were kind of annoying. Um, I didn't really see a huge, I don't know, I didn't take a lot away from them, um, so I'm gonna kind of skip them. But one thing that was interesting was that Clinette was mentioned, Wardine's friend. It looks like she's in the Annette House, which is. Very interesting because while I don't really remember where that was in the timeline, nor have I been like pulling out a graph and being like, oh, this happened in the year of the adult dependable diaper and this was year of the Whopper. So that means that this happened six years before this or whatever. I haven't really been doing that at all. Actually, I'm kind of just reading the book and uh, letting it hopefully fall into place. But Clinette is in the rehab center, friends with Wardine. We also saw um, the last time we talked about the other people who are escaping me right now, the guys who, who did the bad heroin or whatever, whatever it was with the Drano in Chinatown, they killed the guy. It, anyway, they're all connected, and I think that maybe Wardine, like I was saying the last time, that I think that this, this backwards abonics speak thing that they have is a result of, of these drugs and stuff. And the fact that Clinette is in this drug rehab thing leads me to believe that within Wardeen's little world, drugs and stuff is a big problem and may be the cause of a lot of their little little cohorts issues. I don't know. So then we come to Madam Psychosis, and I'm laughing, and I hope that you're all laughing with me when I say that because 
she has uh, in the last couple days become a huge, huge, huge part of this story. Um, perhaps one of the biggest, uh, maybe breakthroughs or something. But at this point, when we're reading on page 181, we don't really know who she is. We kind of just think she's a weird, she's a she's a weird lady who hosts a radio show who hides behind a curtain, and uh, you know does her thing. And she's very eclectic, and she does these weird ramblings and reads that super strange pamphlet about disfigured people. I thought a lot of those those descriptors that they had for people who could join the club or whatever were really funny. So at this point, that was all I had on Madame Psychosis. And really the most important takeaway from that little section for me was it talked about the Tennis Academy's requirements and one that I thought was like like its academic requirements, talking about some of the, the, the rigors that the students have to go through. And one of them that I thought was particularly striking was this emphasis on entertainment and how they have to go through these mandatory entertainment classes. And I think that we had mention of this a couple chapters back where they had a, a midterm exam about entertainment or it was a midterm exam about like the actual like video telephone recording devices or whatever. But um, I think that it says a lot about society because – it seems like even from the ground up, even at a tennis academy, a sports academy, where maybe you would think that like at at Juilliard or something where theater type folk are going and learning their their craft, they would get this this entertainment, you know, centric education. But at a tennis academy, a sports academy, which sole purpose is to train these guys and gals to join the you know, the go to the show, as they like to call it, go to the, the, the tennis major leagues or whatever, they have a mandatory requirement for entertainment because tennis pros are entertainers. And that's, you know, that's going to be their number one job. It's not only to play tennis, but it's also to entertain their fans and stuff like that. So, again, I think it's really interesting, and I think it, 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 it paints a bigger picture about society and kind of the world that we're living in um, here in Infinite Jest. Oh, another super important part was the... Uh, the bit about Hal and Mario going over to their mother's house. I know I just kind of talked about Mario sitting in front of the radio at his mom's house, but I think that it gave a really good glimpse of Hal's interactions with his mother. He's closer with his mother than, than I think I gave him credit for, or at least in the back of my mind gave him credit for. But I think something really interesting that I took away from this was, was, was the mother, the moms, she's still very Canadian. And she, I know that we've discussed on here, or I've discussed rather, that that she has ties to Canada and that I think that she's going to be a central plot piece in with this whole Canadian separation thing and some of the, the assassin stuff and the Canadians and, and that, that whole big humongous plot point in the book. But she, she maintains her ties to Canada. Canada never, never left her. It's not like, yeah, she's Canadian, but she moved to America and now, you know, she's an America, an American woman. No, she's a Canadian woman and she still, talks about Canada and talks like a Canadian and, and does Canadian stuff. I think that's important that she hasn't severed ties yet. Um, I, I, I don't know why and I can't really speculate to why, but I think that's going to come up. That her loyalties lie may not be with where maybe her kids' loyalties lie or where her ex-husband or her, yeah, her ex-husband or deceased husband, or widowed husband, whatever, where his loyalties may have lied. Very interesting. A character we don't know a lot about, but we hear a lot about her. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see uh, where we're at with her. We then get a layout of the Ennett complex. That's the, the, 
the Ennett drug rehab halfway house thing, and it, that it lies on kind of this industrial park with a bunch of units. They were all kind of whatever, I don't know, didn't really pay a ton of attention to this chapter, not just because it didn't, for me, it didn't add much value until I got to this Unit 7 thing and it mentioned the Enfield Tennis Academy because I'm really curious to what was up with Unit 7. It, like, said that it was in the path of the ETA and that, like, maybe when they were doing construction, it could have been a liability, like some gravel or something could have rolled onto it and started, like, a you know, on, like, a landslide or something. But... It's so they had to like take responsibility for it during the time that they were building the tennis academy. But now all these years later, they still own it. Like what's in there? They just said it sits empty and the Enfield Tennis Academy is responsible for it. So that really puzzled me. I don't know why. Maybe it was just like a dumb little thing that I'm overthinking. But that really stuck with me. I'm curious if you guys kind of thought the same thing. After that, we head into the, the weight room at Enfield Tennis Academy, and we get an idea of some of the, again, some of the Enfield Tennis Academy uh, students, and really a strange, strange, strange little little section there. Um, a lot of, you know, homoerotic uh, talk between the, the two dudes who were lifting weights with each other. Not even like that's not a real life like for people who work out like to grunt and stuff like that but kind of the the stuff that they were saying to each other was really weird but whatever it was pretty funny um and then you had all of our guys you know all of our house friends and how in there working out pretty hard too again kind of showing their dedication and stuff like that another interesting little fleeting chapter that we got after that was this one about tiny yule his his tattoos or his tattoo obsession and very interesting little character. I, no pun intended. I thought that I kind of didn't really know where he was coming from, and I still really don't. Except that he, I like, I have a, a picture of him like in my mind. Like I, like I don't know what it like, but him just like running around talking to people about their tattoos, and it seemed like people were pretty into showing it to him and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know where that was going but something that stuck out to me was that our buddy Ken already was in rehab and that was that was cool to see I, I mentioned in a couple podcasts ago that I really liked him and I was excited to see more we haven't really heard any more from him we've heard it kind of referenced but I think what was so interesting to me about that was that he seemed so on top of his his like drug addiction or whatever like he was very systematic about it while he may have not been on top of it in the sense that he was like like I'm definitely going to get clean. I'm going to stay clean. And that he did this weird like binge smoke pot for a whole day and smoke an obscene amount and then not smoke again for a while. It just seems like he had a system and that that was kind of working for him. So to see him in rehab, I'm curious if something happened there that we haven't read yet that that has changed him. And I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that because that was kind of where we started in this book. And I'm like, what? Where is he? We also heard about this guy, Gately, the burglar, and very interesting. It was, again, kind of a fleeting little passage about him, about some big mistakes that he made in his bur burglary. But the most interesting part was that he mentions the consequences of the mistakes that he made, and he's referring to when he killed this guy. I think his name was Duplass. Again, I'm very sorry that I don't remember the name. But he killed that guy, Duplass, in his kitchen when they broke into his house. He's the Canadian att attache or whatever. And... It seems like this guy's death, Duplass, the Canadian in the kitchen, it seems like his death kind of started like his chain reaction thing. Uh, we saw this because it was mentioned by Marath and Steeply when they were up on the mountains in Arizona. And 
it seems to be the catalyst for maybe some of the most recent action against the the U.S. Canadian tension or whatever, maybe not against them, but it's kind of fueling that fire. So it's interesting that Gately has an appreciation for that, like, because I'm assuming that's what he was referring to. I, I guess I should throw that out there. I'm assuming that he's referring to killing this guy, and that was the big mistake that he made when he was a drug addict and a burglar. And then it obviously had dire consequences that it, you know, it has led, it has, it has started maybe an international war or made a bad thing worse. But very interesting, and I, I think that at this point, we're kind of seeing some of these characters come together. Much like a lot of people mentioned we would at around the page 200 mark, we start to see the story come together, and now we're starting to be able to draw these conclusions and stuff like that, and uh, or, or speculate to these, these conclusions and kind of get an idea of where this is heading. So, now it brings us to why we're all here today, and that is to discuss Joel Van Dyne and... I must say, I did not, I even, I made a note to myself that in, in the book, and I said, I don't know who this is, but it seems like they're connect, she's connected to the incandenza. So we get, um, we get this, this Joelle woman. She seems to be a, an academic type, specifically a film academic type when we first meet her, and she is on her way to a party at her friend Molly Notkin's house, and she... She's got some she's got some issues. She has some heartbreak it seems like. She's immediately talking about suicide right off the bat. But she's outside. She's 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 talking about going and scoring some uh something, some kind of a substance. I initially thought that it was marijuana, but she goes and buys a plastic bottle of Pepsi and she buys a cigar and all this stuff and I'm like, "All right, what's she doing?" And she keeps calling what she's buying the material with a capital M. So again, I don't know what it is, but we start to hear reference to someone named Jim and she has a relationship with Jim. You know, she was, uh, she was into his movies. She had, she had watched that and we don't really know where it's going until we realized that Jim is Jim and Candenza and then even Oren is brought up in that she has a relationship with him. So now we're like, what? Because it starts making references to Joelle being Jim's like mistress or something like that. But then they also had some kind of a relationship with Oren. We don't really know where it's going. And then it starts talking about... Jim using her for this this film and using her several times in films. And I immediately went to a pornographic place in that I thought that they were doing, you know, some dirty, some dirty movies. Maybe uh, old J.O.I. was uh, doing some smut film. So, and I, I think that the reason why I got that was just because of the way that she kept saying Jim had used her. Jim didn't want to, she was, she was afraid of this being released. It wasn't something that was meant for everybody to see and stuff like that. So I think that's why I immediately went to porn because that may be something that a woman would do maybe at a younger age and then at a, an older age or after some time had passed may have been regretful of. And I think that's kind of where I went with that. But, and then it also talked about how the, the wife, his, his wife declined to shoot this. So it, Again, it was very, very, it was very weird. 
making making again a lot of strong references to to Jim and Candenza and their their relationship. And then the bomb was dropped, and we learned that uh, Joel is Madame Psychosis. So right there, you can automatically start to like get an idea. So we know that that Joel, Madame Psychosis, had a relationship with Jim and Jim in Candenza. He dies, and then this lady goes crazy and reclusive. That's where I'm at at this point. And we see that she is actually not smoking marijuana. She's smoking cocaine or freebasing cocaine or doing whatever, making some kind of, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know, crack or something. I don't know. But we then get the full picture before it starts talking about Helen Steepley's resume, which was kind of dumb. And we, we learned that, that she's disformed and she has some kind of a, you know, I, there's that's she wears a veil, which I didn't really know what was up with that until I realized that that Madame Psychosis Joel has has something that she doesn't want people to see, like she's ugly or something like that. And then it harkens back to Madame Psychosis reading off that list from the uh, the you know ugly people club or whatever it was, and then you're like, well, shit, she might be a member of that. So we get this fool gamut of stuff about Madame Psychosis, which is an absolute game changer in that she's deformed, she's addicted, and she had some kind of a relationship with James and Candenza. We don't know what the relationship is, but we know that it was something. They throw in that resume. I even made a note why they put that there. It was right in the middle of this Madame Psychosis chapter, or Joel chapter, which seemed to go on forever. And we start to see kind of an idea of who she was and it turns out that James and Candenza did something with her that maybe no one else had done on earth and it was that or she allowed him to do things with her that she had not allowed anyone they refer to as being unveiled and I think that that's a literal meeting and I think that she was probably very uncomfortable with her appearance and then she allowed James and Candenza to use her in a film and I think that that was the most intimate thing that they ever did together. I don't think that they were, like, hooking up or whatever. I think that they just had this crazy intimate relationship because of her her deformity and the nature of his work and the fact that she allowed him to do that. I think that that's huge. And then it starts talking about infinite jest. I actually did have to go back to James and Candenza's filmography, and it turns out that Infinite Jest 5, it's the fifth of of films called Infinite Jest was unfinished and unreleased. And apparently James Incandenza never wanted anyone to see it. He was afraid of it. It was something like too powerful for the world to see. And God only knows what's on there. But that immediately took me to a place where I was like, oh my gosh, this is the movie that the medical attache watched. And they were just so haunted by it. Remember, they couldn't look away. So when I say that this little section here was something like, you know, that it kind of all came together for me. I'm being pretty serious where it's like everything now is kind of like, oh, my gosh, here it is. Albeit, like, I have no idea what's going to happen with it. And I'm totally drawing conclusions here. But absolutely seems like we're kind of getting an idea now. Like, James and Candenza made a movie that was crazy and people couldn't handle it. He killed himself. 
the movie got out there because if you look in the filmography, no one has any idea like where this thing is. There were speculations that the Canadians might have grabbed it. We have a war with Canada going on with America, and now they've used this weaponized entertainment to like hurt people, and maybe the attaché or whatever was was you know the first hit with this entertainment. I don't know. Again, I'm speculating, but this was a huge this was a huge moment for me. We then get into this this party that Joelle eventually gets to. She's at Molly Notkin's house. She's among, it seems like, friends or at the very least colleagues in that they're all kind of like film experts. And they start talking about the Brady Bunch, which I thought was really funny because they're like analyzing the Brady Bunch. And uh, they're actually talking about like it looks like a like a, a redo of the Brady Bunch where where some of the old characters came back, but not really. And it ends up that Jan, the middle daughter, is ended up playing by a black woman. And that was... Uh, that was pretty, pretty funny. We, we, we have Joelle move away from the party, and she's she's moving towards her mission of killing herself, which she calls unmapping herself, which is like taking herself off the map, off the map. I'm assuming. So she goes into the bathroom and she uh, she starts to kind of talk about her her cocaine habits and kind of how she how she how she does it. You know, she doesn't like to to do it up her nose or, you know, with a rolled dollar bill or whatever. She likes to, she likes to kind of freebase it or whatever and, and then smoke it. So it goes through her entire ritual. It talks about her going, you know what, actually let me backtrack because I forgot about this super weird scene where it's talking about her and her father or her in, in like somebody in the past when she was a little girl being called the the pea goat, the prettiest girl of all time, and how she used to go to the movies with him, and that's why she became obsessed with movies. But it started talking about like her eating candy or popcorn or something, and that the popcorn would be in this dude's lap, and she would have to reach her hand all the way down for the prize. And that immediately made me think of that thing where people like cut a hole in the bottom of the popcorn, and then you know, I hopefully I, I won't go too much further than that for the sake of I don't know who's listening. However, draw your own conclusions. But that's if if you know if you if you if you're jiving with me, that's that that's what I was thinking went on with her. So maybe she might have been like a little screwed up from the get go, especially given that you know this dude was telling her she's pretty and we know she's deformed and she might have had some issues down the line that kind of set her up for the future here. In that when people are in a position where they're like, wow, I really, you know, I really want to, I think you're beautiful in this whatever way or whatever. I think that she's drawn to them because she likes the attention because I'm assuming that she historically has never gotten that given that she veils her face, hides behind her curtain, whatever. So maybe the fact that James and Candenza gave her attention it made them have this, this relationship that was so strong. So now, okay, so now we're getting back to the point where where she's she's about to to kill herself and basically what she does is she just she she cooks up all her drugs and the things that she bought were were actually uh tools in order to do this so she she bought the glass tube to put the drugs in and heat it up and cook them up into the the like crack form or whatever the freebase form I don't know but and then uh, she bought the big soda bottles that she can make a big pipe out of it and basically what she does is she smokes like a crap ton out of it and she, like, smokes way too much and then kind of passes out. And it doesn't actually even say if she really kills herself, but she's trying to. And I think she comes pretty close. She's, like, in the bathroom on the 
bathtub, like throwing up or passing out or something. But her goal was to uh, to have too much fun, and she she did that. So we'll hopefully get back to her and kind of see how she ended up. Maybe not, but right now it looks like to me she accomplished her goals. So we then move on to a uh, pretty interesting chapter. Just wrapping it up here. I know this has been a little bit longer one, and I'm going to try not to keep you too much longer. But but Oren calls Hal, and he wants him to discuss. He, he says that he's, he's getting solicitations from the news media talking about uh, himself and his family and his father. They're doing an expose on the father. So he wanted to get a little bit more of an appreciation for how things, what things were like in the Incandenza household right after uh, James Incandenza killed himself. And how paints a pretty good picture of us of Oren's kind of place in the family in that he says, like, well, you weren't around, man. Why are you calling about this? Now, they're not mean. They have a, they seem to have a nice relationship with each other now, but it doesn't look like they ever did. And it looks like that for a good part of Hal's upbringing, maybe, or at least after Oren left the house, let's say, after he graduated from the tennis academy, he kind of did his own thing. So he, Oren asked Hal to walk him through the, su- the, the suicide from James and Condenza, and it turns out he stuck his head in a microwave and he basically blew his head up through the microwave. And it's brutal. It's absolutely brutal. And Hal was the first one to come, a, come across it. And they kind of speculate on why James Incandenza did it. I know I just speculated a little bit on, I think, that he saw his, the movie of his and that he couldn't handle it. You know, and so he needed to kill himself to do something related to the movie. But they start to talk about their mother's relationship with their uncle, Charles Tavis, and maybe there's something going on there, and they really allude to this, like, they have more of a brother and sister relationship than they need to, and I thought that was super strange, because, like, the the brother, Charles Tavis CT, he moves up into the headmaster's house with the mother, and I don't know, it all happened a little too quickly for them, so they're kind of suspect of that, but I think it's interesting that they still, like, go over and hang out with them, and they still live their lives like that, knowing what they know, if that's true. But two interesting things to come out of this chapter was Hal's kind of position on his father's death and that he had a really hard time kind of processing it in that he didn't act appropriately by grieving. He he kind of did this, like, I don't know, I'm all right. I saw some weird stuff, and, you know, now I'm dead. And he, they took him to a grief, a grief therapist, and the grief like the you try saying grief therapist just conversationally it's very difficult but he went to the grief therapist and he he was very scared by him it seems like you know this guy was someone intense and how is a performer he says he always delivers the goods and he was unable to deliver the goods to this guy he eventually uh you know talked to Lyle in the gym he licked his forehead he got an idea of how to fix it and he did but he was pretty profoundly affected by it but he thinks that he mentioned something interesting and kind of fleeting and that his his period where he was not delivering the goods and he was performing poorly at school in tennis at the grief therapist whatever that his poor performances for a little while made everyone else around him happier and i thought that was really interesting and i don't know why he said that but i, I don't know strange like how's the center of everyone's universe i don't know i don't know and then Oren mentions to Hal that he's being followed by people in wheelchairs, and we all know what that means, I think, that, uh, that, that Oren may be targeted for, by the Canadian wheelchair 
Killer Club, the uh, the Wheelchair Assassins Guild. So that's that's kind of where I'm going to leave it, I think, because I did read a couple pages of the Port Washington Tennis Tournament, but but I'm not too far enough into that to talk about it here. We'll talk about it in a little episode on Saturday. But yeah, that was a lot of stuff. Um, and it's getting it's getting good. It's getting weird, but it's getting good. And uh, I'm certainly happy that you all are uh, you all are sticking sticking by me through this thing. Um, I'm here for you. I'm glad everyone likes the podcast. It's had nothing but but good reviews on the uh, the Reddit page. We have a ton of views on the um, uh, we have a ton of plays on the SoundCloud page, and it's on iTunes now. So everyone, please make sure to subscribe. Tell a friend. And enjoy. Um, I hope you have a happy next couple days reading. For Infinite Jests and David Foster Wallace, I'm Zach Hall. Peace.